Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. Well, listen, I'm super thankful uh, to be here with you guys. My name is uh, Rich Perez, uh, born and raised in New York, uptown New York, Shasta, Wash Heights, and Dykeman. Uh, I'm grateful to be here uh, with you guys. This will be my last week here with you guys, so that's a bit of a bummer, but I'm grateful uh, anytime I get the opportunity to be back in New York, but also, and, and probably most importantly, the opportunity to preach God's word, because I think there's something really beautiful in the word that we have today uh, that I don't want us to leave without. Uh, I've got a lot to say, so we're going to jump right in. Mark chapter 5, uh, a really beautiful, powerful story. Uh, about Jesus engaging a bleeding woman. I'll read the word for us and we'll jump in. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. It says, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little girl is dying. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may get well and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, or because she said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and said, who has touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing up against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. An important detail in the story. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth, or other versions say the whole story. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your afflictions. You know, just a few moments ago, we had such a sweet time in worship, singing confidently about the confidence that we have in God's love. Uh, And I loved it. I loved being in that moment because it felt so authentic. It felt so intense with passion. Uh, And I think it's true of any of us who have experienced God kindness. But one of the things that I've realized about my own journey and my own moments of deep passion and excitement, remembering uh, the confidence that I have in God's love, is that I often miss the ways that both of those things confidence and God's love grow. I forget the setting that nurtures them. I forget the moments that they're served to me in, right? That, they, that, that this confidence that I herald, this love that I remember, I don't often remember how it grows and how it comes to me sometimes. 
that I think we often think that confidence grows because of clarity of details when really it grows because of mystery. And that's what I want to talk about today, mystery, the idea that our faith and that our confidence in God's love for us grows not in the details but in devotion. And I think one of the things that you realize when you look through the Bible is that you see that there is no shortage of people who followed God because they were certain of God's love and care for them and not because they were certain of the details of how their life would turn out. That there's rarely a character in scripture that knew exactly because God gave it to them all the details of how things would turn out. But instead, what you do find are people who are certain that God loves them despite the fact that they don't know how things are going to turn out. That in a sense, there is some mystery in the way that they practice their faith. They trusted God, not because God gave them details, but instead because God gave them devotion. Clarity and certainty are not the same thing. And I think that this, this has played out in the way that we've parented our kids, right? When they were younger, they wanted to know all the things that were happening, but they were okay in trusting us when we didn't give them all the details. But we've got a 14-year-old now, and he wants to know everything. He pushes the bounds of his curiosity a whole lot more, and so he asks. And most of the times, he's not okay when we're, when we're okay with not giving him the details, so he pushes. And when he pushes, sometimes that gets him in trouble. Other times, it creates really dope conversations about what trust should look like. And church, I think that this is the same way that God engages us. I've realized that in my own parenting, the goal in parenting is not raising humans that have the right answers, but humans that know how to wrestle with the right questions. That we have to create spaces and environments in our relationship with one another uh, that fosters mystery, because I think it's in that mystery and in that wrestle that our faith actually grows. We wanted to shape our kids to be comfortable with not knowing some things. We wanted our kids to be comfortable with being comfortable in the dark, comfortable enough to still trust God despite the fact that they didn't have all the details and often don't have the details. And so I think faith, church, is to be okay with darkness in a sense, <laughs> learning to be comfortable in the dark. There is a sense that trusting God means befriending the darkness. Now, to be clear, I don't mean the darkness of evil or the darkness of sin, of course, but what I do mean is the darkness of losing your job and not knowing why. What I do mean is the darkness of your marriage falling apart or an illness taking over your life or the life of a loved one or a close friend acting funny or hurtful and you not understanding why or the darkness of praying for something and that something doesn't come to life or the darkness of doubting something that you've trusted for a long time that has now been something that you can't trust, like a relationship. Church, I think that it's in the pain and mystery of darkness that I think our faith is made or broken. And that's precisely what I want to talk about today. Mark chapter 5 gives us some insight here as Jesus engages this bleeding woman. And the first thing that I want us to move away with is this. God uses faith to give us imagination in dark seasons. 
God uses faith to give us imagination in the dark. Now, if you followed my ministry for any length of time, and particularly when my wife and I were pastoring up in Washington Heights, I talked a lot about imagination. I did. I think it annoyed some people, actually. Um, but, but funny enough, I, I think for those that didn't fare well with my bringing of imagination into the spiritual journey, I think oftentimes it's because they were never shown how imagination and faith are married. That in fact, they're cousins. That in order to have one, you have to have the other. They've never been showed how marriage, uh, excuse me, faith and imagination play to each other's strengths. And I think for most people that have found imagination a difficult concept to grasp is because their relationship with Jesus has been about asking clear questions and getting clear answers. Their version of, Jesus, of relationship with Jesus has very little nuance in it. It has very little gray. It's been black, it's been white, but it's never been gray. It's never been in the middle, and it's never been nuanced. And so when I invite people to uh, welcome imagination, they have a hard time with it. And my guess is that those of us that have had trouble embracing imagination in our relationship with God are also the ones that have a hard time understanding God or trusting God or even seeing God at work when he does something outside of the box we reduced him to. You see, when, when we live in church and in church culture, we've often reduced God to the categories that make us feel very comfortable. It's black, it's white, it's right, it's wrong, it's this or it's that. And because we don't invite gray and don't invite nuance in our walk with Jesus, when God does something outside of those categories, you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to engage God. And my guess is that those of us who have trouble with imagination are also the ones that have a difficult time knowing what to say when it comes to anything outside of the church. Because, of course, as we know in our workspaces or in our school spaces or in our relationships with people who don't know Jesus, they don't have those same categories that we do. I think that this is the reason that we often don't know how to talk about history. Or why we don't really know how to talk about science or sexuality or art because those things function outside of the boxes that we've reduced Jesus to. But what I think Jesus does here with this bleeding woman is he blows up those boxes. And he invites us to embrace imagination which oftentimes exists in the nuance and in the gray. But I believe very deeply that that's where our faith is made strong. That, that, that's where our, cla- where our vision is made clear of what Jesus is doing. The woman in Mark chapter 5 needed a whole deal of imagination in order to see herself outside of the situation she had been living in for 12 years. Now, I want you to realize that this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Now, this is where my relationship with my older sister, with my mom, with my wife, of course, and now with a young girl at 10 years old on the precipice of uh, puberty. (laughs) This is where my relationship with the women of my my life have helped me to understand the depth of this passage. So, fellas, listen up for a moment, because I think we, if we don't see what the women in our lives can teach us about how God desires to relate to us, we'll miss the meaning of this passage. This woman had been bleeding for 
12 years. And most commentators and scholars would understand that her bleeding was due to either severe menstrual cycle or the many, many miscarriages that she had as a result of it. Now, in Jewish culture, what we need to understand is that no one was allowed to be around a dead body, a person with leprosy, or blood. To be around those things would, would, to, would make you uh, to be considered unworthy of being around God because it would consider you to be unclean. So now imagine, brothers, for a moment, if I could talk to my brothers for a second, I want you to enter into the depth of this story. I want you to enter into this moment because if we don't, we miss what God is saying, both about Jesus and his engagement with us, but also about what the women of our lives are trying to teach us. That the experience of a menstrual cycle is often described as excruciating pain, which is why verse 34 tells us that Jesus describes her pain as affliction. Now, in the Greek language, in the original language this was written in, the Greek paints the picture of leather straps with shard glass at the end of it or stones at the end of each whip and being whipped by someone with it. That's what affliction, that's the picture that it paints. And this is the word that Jesus used to describe what this woman had gone through for 12 years. Woman's period oftentimes lasts about a week long, if not more than that. And the pain for some women has, has been considered to be as deep and as difficult as childbirth. This is the excruciating pain of this woman. And the reason why I'm being so explicit is because I think it's important to plummet into the depth of her pain so that we would understand the beauty of what Jesus actually does with her. But church, I... Could I, could I tell you that I think the physical pain that she experienced couldn't even compare to the social trauma that she experienced as a result of it? That the bleeding woman was legally and socially unclean. She was the source of uncleanliness in her community to anyone that would touch her or be touched by her. And that means that she would have had to have been separated from anyone that she loves, from the community that she belongs to, and the society that she's a part of. She lived on the margins of everything that she knew. She lived outside of the people that she loved. That does something to someone, doesn't it? How could this bleeding woman survive 12 years of this kind of physical, emotional, and social trauma and still be able to tell her story? Here's, here's what happens in the story. She says, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Now, I want us to pay close attention to this word, if, because I think it tells us something really, really important about what faith is. The if in verse 28 doesn't mean, doesn't seem to communicate her uncertainty about whether or not Jesus could or even would heal her. I think that she deeply believes that Jesus could do that and that Jesus would do that. That's not what she's concerned about. That's not what she's wondering. That's not mysterious to her. She is very convinced that Jesus would and could do it. When she uses the word if here, in verse 28, what it communicates is that she's uncertain about whether or not she'll make it to him. Can I make it to Jesus is what she's uncertain about. 
You see, church, it's not just the crowd that stands between her and Jesus, but it's also the disappointment of 12 years. She's wondering if she can get through the shame that she carries because of her illness. She's wondering if she can not only get physically through the crowds, wondering if anybody she touches along the way will be contaminated by her. She'll be outed by the people and then, and then ostracized even further, perhaps worth be put to death because of what she's done. But she's also dealing with the disappointment. Yo, can I even get over what these dark 12 years have done to me? If I could just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. It's almost as if she's saying, if I could get through the crowd and to Jesus, I'll be healed. If I could get through these disappointments and remember what I've heard about Jesus, I'll be healed. If I, if I could see beyond these last dark 12 years and embrace what is possible, if I get to Jesus, I'll be healed. God, I can't see how I will endure this. I can't see how you'll rescue me from this. God, I can't see where you are or where you're taking me are the questions that sometimes I ask in my seasons of darkness. I don't know about you, but I wonder. In the darkest of my journey with Jesus, I wonder where he is. And I wonder where he's taking me. How could you use this? I can't see beyond the darkness that sits in front, of me, in front of me like this woman. I, too, have to hurdle my own disappointments. I, too, have to hurdle the dark seasons of my life. But, church, I want you to notice that despite the fact that she had only grown worse because she gave bread. So just check this out for a second. Not only is she dealing with physical affliction, not only is she dealing with the social trauma of what her affliction brings her, but it's also having economic implications on her. She's poor as a result of trying to get better now. She has exhausted all of her resource in trying to get better, and instead she only grew worse. But despite that... Despite the social outcast that she had become as a result of her illness, this woman's hope and her expectations had not been crushed. Her disappointment wasn't final. Her disappointment, church, was not final. You see, the danger of pressing through the crowds in her condition or even the danger of death itself because of her illness was not so intimidating that it erased her hope. She maintained her hope. And the discouragement of what her life had become did not extinguish her imagination of what was possible if she could just get to Jesus. In her 2017 article, The Bleeding Woman, Sister Teresa O'Kerr describes this story this way. She says, the story of, a bleeding, of this bleeding woman is the story of a woman who refused to sit back and resign to fate and allow herself to bleed to death. Now, let me be clear. It's important to recognize uh, the action of this bleeding woman. For a moment. This isn't a pull yourself up from your own bootstrap kind of determination. It wasn't her will that was stubborn. It was her faith and her imagination that was stubborn. She had already tried. She wasn't determined to free herself or to make herself better. She tried that and then left it with a zero bank account. This wasn't about stubborn will. This was about stubborn imagination and faith. She was determined to believe. Remember what the verse says. I'm not adding to that. It's right in the text. 
She was determined to believe what she heard about Jesus, is what the text says. Right? I'm not tripping. That's what the text says, right? She heard, when she had heard about Jesus, she went. She was determined to believe what she heard about Jesus and that it was true. She was determined to believe that what she heard was true. This wasn't about her will, y'all. This was about her imagination, about what she heard. Church, the truth is we need imagination. We don't know how to live without it. We do not know how to live without imagination. We need imagination because we need mystery, and we need mystery because nothing in the world makes us worship like curiosity and wonder. Nothing in the world makes us worship like wonder, like curiosity. Like when you look at something and you say, wow, I don't get it, but thank you. I used to think that I worship God because what I know about God. And in a fundamental way, that is true. I don't want to say here and say that it's, not, that it's not true. But I used to think that the source, the main thrust of my worship was what I know about God. And, and while that's true in some ways, what I've realized over the years is that what really inspires my worship of God is not what's clear to me about him, but what's mysterious to me about God. What doesn't always make sense. Now, I know God loves me. I know God loves us. I know that God loves his creation. That is abundantly clear to me because he didn't just say he loved me and didn't give me a way to measure it. Jesus on the cross in an empty tomb is the way that I measure the way that God loves me. I know he does. That's abundantly clear to me. But in my seasons of darkness and sin, what isn't always clear to me is why he loves me. And it's in that small little detail and in that small little moment where while I know it's true and I know it's clear that he loves me and I don't know why, that's why I worship God. That's why God, that's what thrusts me into the presence of God because I know that he loves me. He's made it clear, but I'm not entirely sure why he loves this dude. Imagination is more than fantasy. I should be clear. I'm not talking about fantasy. I'm not talking about some whimsical, empty, air-filled imagination. I'm talking about an imagination that is birthed out of what Jesus has done for us. And I love, church, that Jesus uses this woman, that he uses this woman to teach us about faith. For starters, I don't think I hear very often uh, the way that uh, leaders and preachers honor women, <laughs> And teach us about how, how a woman can teach us who Jesus is. Right? We like to talk about men and Peters and Pauls and Johns and Jameses. <laughs> but this unnamed woman teaches us something deeply important about who Jesus is. Because when he, when he connects this woman to his life, he connects her pain to his pain. He connects her shedding of blood for 12 years to his shedding of blood on the cross. He connects her darkness of 12, 12 years of pain to his darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane, the pain he felt and the cross that he would soon bear. 
What I love about this story of freedom and healing and the other stories that came before, because, you know, just before this story, Jesus, Jesus set free and healed a man who was uh, possessed by a demon. Jesus had raised a young woman from the dead. And these are the stories. You just follow the theme of just these last few chapters in Mark chapter 3, 4, and 5. And he, and he shows us this. And what I love most about these stories of freedom and healing and the ones that came before it is what Cuban historian Justo Gonzalez says. He says this, the demons that Jesus conquers are not only those of disease and death, but also those of isolation and exclusion. See that when Jesus heals you, certainly he heals your spirit, but he certainly changes your social circumstance. That when God does a work, he does it entirely. He does it holistically. When he sets your mind free and he sets your spirit free, he also begins to change the so so social circumstances that you are a part of. And when we are a collective of people that have been redeemed by this kind of power, this church not only becomes a church or an agent of freedom on how to set people free spiritually, but we start to change the social fabric of the places we occupy. It means it impacts the way that we think about politics. It, in, it impacts the way that we think about certain policies. It impacts the way that we live in our, with our neighbors. It impacts the way that we do urban housing. It impacts the way that we talk about affordable housing. It impacts all of it. It impacts the way that we think about women. It, thinks, it impacts the way that we think about the disabled. It, it impacts the way that we think about society. Because when Jesus saves you, he sets your soul free and he puts a destiny to your, to your soul. But he also changes the soul, social factors that you're a part of and Jesus shows us this precisely in the way that he engages this woman he's gonna set us free of disease and death but he's also gonna set us free of isolation and exclusion but not only that I'm glad you do God uses faith to give us courage in the dark God gives uses faith to give us courage in the dark now I've already said this before this woman is taking on huge risks showing up in public I can't, y'all can't miss this. She was ostracized. She's considered unclean because she's been bleeding. She's been, this is wild to me. She's unclean because she a woman, basically. Basically. She is set to the margin simply because she got her period. And so this woman takes on a great deal of risks simply just showing up in public, let alone try to navigate the, the crowds that were pressing up on Jesus, mess around, touch somebody, find out that she touched somebody and her, someone pointing her out and bringing out to the middle and ridiculing her, perhaps even killing her. This woman was risking her own life and the lives of others simply because of what she heard about Jesus. Verse 27. Yet in these dark 12 years, God had shaped in her a kind of determination to trust God enough to take risks. You, you, you want to know why? You want to know why it's so hard for you to sometimes take risks? It's because you've underestimated and overlooked the dark seasons of your life where God shapes in you the determination to find the courage to take risks that you never thought you'd take. This woman has been living in the dark of her affliction, in the darkness of her affliction for 12 years. And in those 12 years, God shaped in her a kind of spirit that, that weighed the outcomes of her, of her decisions and despite it, took the risk to reach out to Jesus. 
This woman was, was risking making the crowds unclean, perhaps even Jesus himself unclean. She didn't know if she reached out to Jesus, Jesus started twitching and dropped dead because she touched him. But she trusted enough in what God had done to her in those 12 years to say, what else? What else I got? If I could just get close, I know I could be healed. But this woman's risk, church, I don't want you to miss this, teaches us quite a bit about faith. Notice verse 30 and 31, what it says. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. Talk about being in tune with yourself. You know when power leaves you. Right? That's just wild to me. I think about the self-care talk that we have here, which I think is super important. And I often think about the ways that being around certain people drains us of power. Right? And we don't notice it. And we realize why being around certain people is so draining, but we don't really have the language for it. Jesus, at once, <laughs> Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out for him. He turned around to the crowd and said, yo, who touched me? And his disciples said to him, Jesus, you tripping. Everybody touching you. That's just my version, but that's basically what it says. You see the crowd pressing up against you, and yet you say, who's touched me? Like, brother, everybody touching you. How could you even ask that question? But, upon, but because Jesus asked this question, it says something deeply important about touch. Jesus was getting at something deeply important here. Jesus is making a distinction between how the crowds are touching him and how this woman is touching him. And that distinction is more powerful than you could ever imagine, church, because this distinction is saying something really important about what kind of faith the crowd has in Jesus and what kind of faith the woman has in Jesus. When Jesus asked who touched me, when Jesus asked who touched me, he seems to be making a distinction of touch, a distinction of the way the crowd is touching him and pressing up against him and the woman. And this distinction is undoubtedly a distinction of the faith. How did Jesus in a crowded space being pressed up, literally pressed up by everybody, how does he notice that this woman grabs the hem of his garment? Church, could I give us a hard truth for a second? I was going to give it to us anyways. Some of us may be staying close or reaching out to Jesus simply because we want him to perform a magic trick in our lives and not because we truly, deeply desire him in our lives. I want y'all to notice this. Jesus had already been doing a ton of crazy things, crazy miracles, saying crazy things. And he, he became somewhat of a rock star in the world. And people were following him. And at one point, Jesus was like, they're here because they want some bread. But this woman had been living in the darkness of her life and affliction for 12 years. And in that, not only, not only the determination to take risk was born, but also the hunger for connection and intimacy was born. It was in those 12 years that she was able to develop a distinct kind of reaching than the crowd had. Some of us simply want to be close to Jesus or close to godliness to some degree because we think that we would probably get something from it where in fact this woman is not reaching out for God to necessarily do anything for him but because she deeply needs connection to Jesus. 
Church, we all reach out to God with different intentions, but only the hand that embraces the pain and the mystery of their dark seasons will truly grab on to God. But you know, as I think about this scenario, the whole scene, I mean, enter into this moment for a moment. Even as we were worshiping, I was thinking about our our passage and, and and I tried my best to envision how that must have felt. Like, have you ever been in a crowded room and, and you got to get to somebody on the other side and, you know, you don't, you don't want to be bumping into people, especially within the last two years where the idea of touch has just been such a really, really sensitive thing. And, and, and it feels so difficult to get to that other person. I tried to enter into this moment and I thought to myself, man, Jesus, this woman has gone through so much. This woman has bore a burden so heavy Why wouldn't you just let her go quietly? Why would you have to stop and single her out? Why why didn't you just give her the whole cinematic, you know, like turn, wink at her and just say like, yo, I got you. You know, like, why don't you just, like, I feel like that just would have been so dope of Jesus. Like, felt the touch, be like, oh, something just left me and just like, oh, I I got you. It's good. We'll talk later. You know, like, why didn't you just... And the more I thought about it, the more I tried to understand this story. And I realized that <clears throat> quiet is how she came into this story. She entered into this story quiet. And that's exactly how she wants to leave. But Jesus had different intentions. Jesus said, nah. You came and were introduced into this crowd as an unnamed, marginalized, unclean woman. But you're not going to leave that way. Quiet you came in, but you will not leave quiet in the end. And this brings me to my last thought as we wrap up. Faith brings us into the ultimate honor. Faith brings us into the ultimate honor. Look what verse 34 says. Thank you, Jesus. He says, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. (laughs) Y'all, listen. She goes from being the unnamed, marginalized woman in the story who was walking in pain and darkness of her bleeding for 12 years. She goes from walking in the darkness of losing all her resources just to find healing, from walking in the darkness of not knowing if she would get any better, from walking in the darkness of never being restored back to her family or her community, walking in the darkness of having no one to advocate for her, and living in the shadow of Jairus' daughter, because remember, this daughter was the daughter of a very important, privileged religious leader. Y'all consider that contrast? I know we didn't read the whole passage, but when you get home, read the whole chapter and read how the, how the story first started with this very religious leader, Jairus, stepping to Jesus. It's, there was almost no difficulty get, for him getting to, the, to Jesus through the crowd because that's what power and privilege can do. Particularly in that culture, that's what power and privilege in a man can do. It can just get you to where you need to go. So he was able to navigate the crowd easily, fell down before Jesus, very humbly. I don't want to speak ill of my man Jairus. He he did it right, but, you know, his power and privilege got him there. And he he got to Jesus, humbled himself, but he said, yo, my daughter's dying. Can I get you to come? And Jesus was like, oh, yeah, that's what I do. I could go with you. Cool. And they just start walking. The crowd starts pressing in. And then this unnamed, 
marginalized, ostracized woman gets Jesus to stop everything. She goes from that darkness to being contrasted with this very privileged daughter. And and notice, notice (laughs) that this little girl is 12 years old. This little girl's been living as long as she's been suffering. Jesus gave priority to this woman. In fact, if you continue to read the story, you realize that Jesus spent enough time stopping for this little girl to go ahead and die. She died. Jesus stopped. Almost like if Jairus hadn't come to him, he's like, nah, I got this woman right here. And later on, we realized Jesus did the thing. He did what he do. He went out there and he's... Healed the daughter. But she goes from being in those 12 years of darkness and pain and wondering if she'll get better and who's going to advocate for me because I got no one. I ain't got no Jairus. I don't got a Jairus. I don't got no husband. I don't got a man that's going to advocate for me. So you know what? I've just got to creep in here, take some chances, take some risk and, and hope that Jesus would do what I've heard that he's done. She goes from wondering to knowing that darkness From being in that darkness to now, verse 34, being daughter. This unnamed woman that came into the story quietly now is daughter. And check this out, y'all. Check this out. Notice that it says just daughter. Unlike the little girl, this woman was not reduced to the man that she was connected to or associated with. She stood on her own daughter, not daughter of so-and-so, not niece of so-and-so, just daughter, that you don't have to be reduced to the man that you're connected to, that you can stand on your own as daughter. And church, what I want you to see here is that what seems to have the greatest weight is Jesus calls her daughter. She goes from being the bleeding woman to the woman of faith. She goes from losing all her resources to now having all of God's attention. From the woman with affliction to the woman with healing. From the woman with a fractured life to the woman with shalom, which means wholeness, completeness. From the woman with, a, with, a, with, a, with no family or advocates to daughter of God. Jesus doesn't hope to embarrass her by singling her out. He hopes to honor her. By singling her out. And what I love about this, that Jesus stops everything, is so that everybody can see. You see, in this moment, everybody's watching. Because Jesus is on his way to do something because the guy with privilege and power came and got everyone's attention. Now Jesus is walking in that direction. Everyone is watching and Jesus stops everything. And now at the end of this story with this woman, everyone, including this woman, will leave convinced that Jesus... Not the doctors, not the resources she had, not even her own efforts. Jesus is the source of her healing because everybody saw it. Jesus stopped. Had Jesus not stopped, they would have wondered what the source of her healing was. Listen, not only would they have wondered what the source of her healing was, a part of me wants to believe, considering that culture, that they wouldn't have believed that she was healed to begin with. They would have gaslit her. Mm, I don't know. But because Jesus stopped, everything singled her out to honor her. Everybody now 
has no, no opportunity to deny that Jesus is the source of her healing. So church, as we close here, you may believe that Jesus has other more important prayers to answer. You may have in your mind believed that Jesus has more other important prayers to answer. But if this passage tells us anything, it's this. There is no amount of power or privilege that can keep Jesus from stopping everything to hear your whole story and honor you with his affection. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the way that you love us. And um, I just pray that we would never forget how deeply you love us, how you pursue us, how you care about every detail of our story. God, forgive us if we've ever underestimated a certain part of our lives because we didn't think it was important for you. Help us to grow in our ability to see what you are doing in our lives. And as we prayed before, God, do what I never could. Help us to see, help us to hear, help us to perceive in Jesus' name. Amen.